0: The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father John Zilchel. We welcome as our guest today the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. We will hear their 1990 instruction called Donum Veritatis, on the ecclesial vocation of the theologian. During a time of terrific dissent and undermining of the people of God by all manner of prideful individuals and secular forces, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in 1990 provided some guidelines about the indispensable role of the theologian, how the theologian contributes to the church and also how the theologian can seriously damage the church. How does a theologian relate to the magisterium How do they work together? How can they be in conflict with each other? How do they resolve their conflicts? How do they work together to build up the people of God, all in service of the church and salvation? It's good to review this document in view of the debates going on right now and in view of the antics and activities of some theologians today who seem to have lost the path of true service to the church. Donum veritatis was extremely helpful when it was issued at the time, and it remains just as helpful now, provided that it isn 't ignored uh, for example, one theologian recently uh, who who might who i don 't believe has an official mandate to teach at a, an American uh, Catholic university in the theology department wrote about the problems liberal theologians are experiencing today in the face of younger people who are seeking out a more conservative or traditional presentation of theology. Uh, he wrote a piece about this phenomenon, uh, calling upon liberal theologians to give some thought as to how to how to deal with this, how to continue to contribute to the church today. But he did not, at any point that I could discern at least, make use of this CDF document, which addresses precisely the issue he is grappling with. Which is a little selective, uh, if he purposely ignored it, then I you know call into question his integrity, and if he doesn't know about it, then I'd have to ask why because it's so fundamental to to what he does in any event uh let's get right into this because it's longish. Here are some things to tune your ear for as I read. Um, I won't read all the inline references, you know, for example, citations from scripture, you know what it is, or I'm not going to say quote, close quote all the time, because it would be just too ponderous. You're going to have to listen, figure it out, and you can always check and follow along the original text on the Vatican website. You should look at that anyway. Anyway, uh, listen to how the congregation uh, stresses the truth. It's constantly concerned with the truth. And there is also a stress on the constant interplay of faith and reason throughout Um, From the top, there are references also to 1 Peter 3 about how we have to be ready to give an account of the hope that is in us to those who ask for it. Uh, Note also the connection of the pursuit of truth as an impulse of love. Uh, Ultimately, the ecclesial vocation, that is the vocation of the theologian in the church, is really a vocation of love. Uh, St. Augustine identifies uh, heresy and false teaching as a lack of charity, the a loss of charity. Heresy is the opposite of charity. Theologians have to strive to deepen their faith, the congregation says. They have to be in love with what they pursue, which is the truth, and so they have to strive to grow in virtue and holiness in order to fulfill their vocation properly. Uh, theologians have to have a good grounding in philosophy. Theologians can, can gain insights from surrounding culture, but that's a risky undertaking. Uh, theologians must never forget that they too are members of the people of God, and so they have to uh, do nothing which is going to harm the doctrine of the faith, which in turn harms the people of God. If you teach error, you harm people. In other words, you know, you can't make something mean the opposite of what it means, which I think a lot of people are trying to do right now. Uh, the document stresses that research and the academic community of theologians remains under the authority of the magisterium. They're not separate from the magisterium; they work in unity with the magisterium and Of course, you know there's a section then in the document about the role of the magisterium. Uh, the document says, and here I'll quote. It must protect God's people from the danger of deviations and confusion, guaranteeing them the objective possibility of professing the authentic faith free from error. At all times and in diverse situations, it follows that the sense and the weight of the magisterium's authority are only intelligible in relation to the truth of Christian doctrine and the preaching of the true word. The function of the magisterium is not, then, something extrinsic to Christian truth, nor is it set above the faith. You see, the magisterium has a particular role in the life of the church. It's a constitutive element of what Christ made the church to be and to do. Um, The document clarifies that faith and morals are the special fields of the magisterium, as well as the natural law. Uh, It talks about the role of the pope and of the bishops, And then it moves into a discussion of the reciprocal relationship of the theologian with the magisterium, how there can be a tension between the two. Um, It stresses the importance of the canonical mission to teach and the the responsibility that that imposes on the theologian. And um, it also lays out various aspects of dissent, which is fascinating. As As you listen to this, you can hear precisely the kinds of things that are that are going on among dissenters and certain liberal theologians today. Um, the document, however, does say that uh, theologians are not just mouthpieces or catechists of what the magisterium teaches, but they also are not the magisterium either. There can't be a parallel magisterium of theologians to the magisterium of pastors. That would be a Contradiction in itself; it wouldn't be legitimate. And um, the uh, the section on sensus uh, fidelium uh, is very good. You know, one of the things about having the sensus fidelium, or the sense of the faith, the sense of the you know the the census fidei fidelium, the sense of the faith of believers, is that you have to be a believer in order to have it. And the document talks about that. Um, let's move straight into the Straight into the document because uh, it's, uh, I could go on, you know, with little points and so forth, but you listen to this patiently and you're going to dig out all sorts of beautiful little gems yourself, especially as you go back to review it on the website. So here is Donum Veritatis on the ecclesial vocation of the theologian from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in 1990. Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Instruction, Donum Veritatis, on the ecclesial vocation of the theologian. Introduction The truth which sets us free is a gift of Jesus Christ. Man's nature calls him to seek the truth, while ignorance keeps him in a condition of servitude. Indeed, man could not be truly free were no light shed upon the central questions of his existence, including, in particular, where he comes from and where he is going. When God gives himself to man as a friend, man becomes free, in accordance with the Lord's word, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Man's deliverance from the alienation of sin and death comes about when Christ, the truth, becomes the way for him. In the Christian faith, knowledge and life, truth and existence are intrinsically connected, Assuredly, the truth given in God's revelation exceeds the capacity of human knowledge, but it is not opposed to human reason. Revelation, in fact, penetrates human reason, elevates it, and calls it to give an account of itself. For this reason, from the very beginning of the church, the standard of teaching has been linked with baptism to entrance into the mystery of Christ. The service of doctrine, implying as it does the believer's search for an understanding of the faith, that is, theology, is therefore something indispensable for the church. Theology has importance for the church in every age, so that it can respond to the plan of God, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In times of great spiritual and cultural change, theology is all the more important. Yet it also is exposed to risks since it must strive to abide in the truth, while at the same time taking into account the new problems which confront the human spirit. In our century, in particular, during the periods of preparation for and implementation of the Second Vatican Council, theology contributed much to a deeper understanding of the realities and the words handed on. But it also experienced, and continues to experience, moments of crisis and tension, The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith deems it opportune, then, to address to the bishops of the Catholic Church, and through them her theologians, the present instruction which seeks to shed light on the mission of theology in the Church. After having considered truth as God's gift to His people, the instruction will describe the role of theologians, ponder the particular mission of the Church's pastors, and finally propose some points on the proper relationship between theologians and pastors. In this way, it aims to serve the growth in understanding of the truth, which ushers us into that freedom which Christ died and rose to win for us. The Truth, God's Gift to His People Out of His infinite love, God desired to draw near to man as he seeks his own proper identity and walk with him. He also wanted to free him from the snares of the father of lies, and to open the way to intimacy with himself, so that man could find there, superabundantly, full truth and authentic freedom. This plan of love, conceived by the Father of lights, and realized by the Son victorious over death, is continually made present by the Spirit who leads all to the truth. The truth possesses in itself a unifying force. It frees men from isolation and the oppositions in which they have been trapped by ignorance of the truth. And as it opens the way to God, it at the same time unites them to each other. Christ destroyed the wall of separation which had kept them strangers to God's promise and to the fellowship of the covenant. Into the hearts of the faithful He sends His Spirit, through whom we become nothing less than one in Him. Thus, thanks to the new birth and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, We become the one new people of God, whose mission it is, with our different vocations and charisms, to preserve and hand on the gift of truth. Indeed, the whole Church, as the salt of the earth and the light of the world, must bear witness to the truth of Christ, which sets us free. The people of God responded to this calling, above all by means of the life of faith and charity and by offering to God a sacrifice of praise. More specifically, as far as the life of faith is concerned, the Second Vatican Council makes it clear that the whole body of the faithful who have an anointing that comes from the Holy One cannot err in matters of belief. And this characteristic is shown in the supernatural sense of the faith of the whole people, when, from the bishops to the last of the faithful, they manifest a universal consent in matters of faith and morals. In order to exercise the prophetic function in the world, the people of God must continually reawaken or rekindle its own life of faith. It does this particularly by contemplating ever more deeply, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the contents of the faith itself, and by dutifully presenting the reasonableness of the faith to those who ask for an account of it. For the sake of this mission, the Spirit of Truth distributes among the faithful of every rank special graces for the common good. Vocation of the Theologian Among the vocations awakened in this way by the Spirit in the Church is that of the theologian. His role is to pursue, in a particular way, an ever-deepening understanding of the Word of God found in the inspired Scriptures and handed on by the living tradition of the Church. He does this in communion with the magisterium, which has been charged with the responsibility of preserving the deposit of faith. By its nature, faith appeals to reason because it reveals to man the truth of his destiny and the way to attain it. Revealed truth, to be sure, surpasses our telling. All our concepts fall short of its ultimately unfathomable grandeur. Nevertheless, revealed truth beckons reason. God's gift fashioned for the assimilation of truth, to enter into its light and thereby come to understand in a certain measure what it has believed. Theological science responds to the invitation of truth as it seeks to understand the faith. It thereby aids the people of God in fulfilling the apostles' command to give an accounting for their hope to those who ask it. The theologian's work thus responds to a dynamism found in the faith itself, Truth, by its nature, seeks to be communicated, since man was created for the perception of truth and from the depths of his being desires knowledge of it, so he can discover himself in the truth and find there his salvation. For this reason, the Lord sent forth his apostles to make disciples of all nations and teach them. Theology, which seeks the reasons of faith, and offers these reasons as a response to those seeking them, thus constitutes an integral part of obedience to the command of Christ, for men cannot become disciples if the truth found in the word of faith is not presented to them. Theology, therefore, offers its contribution so that the faith might be communicated. Appealing to the understanding of those who do not yet know Christ, it helps them to seek and find faith obedient to the impulse of truth, which seeks to be communicated, theology also arises from love and love's dynamism. In the act of faith, man knows God's goodness and begins to love Him. Love however, is ever desirous of a better knowledge of the beloved. From this double origin of theology, inscribed upon the interior life of the people of God and its missionary vocation, derives the method with which it ought to be pursued in order to satisfy the requirements of its nature. Since the object of theology is the truth, which is the living God and his plan for salvation revealed in Jesus Christ, the theologian is called to deepen his own life of faith and continuously unite his scientific research with prayer. In this way he will become more open to the supernatural sense of faith upon which he depends and it will appear to him as a sure rule for guiding his reflections and helping him assess the correctness of his conclusions. Through the course of centuries, theology has progressively developed into a true and proper science. The theologian must therefore be attentive to the epistemological requirements of his discipline, to the demands of rigorous critical standards, and thus to a rational verification of each stage of his research. The obligation to be critical, however, should not be identified with the critical spirit which is born of feeling or prejudice. The theologian must discern in himself the origin of and motivation for his critical attitude, and allow his gaze to be purified by faith. The commitment to theology requires a spiritual effort to grow in virtue and holiness. Even though it transcends human reason, revealed truth is in profound harmony with it. It presumes that reason by its nature is ordered to the truth in such a way that, illumined by the faith, it can penetrate to the meaning of revelation. Despite the assertions of many philosophical currents, but in conformity with a correct way of thinking which finds confirmation in Scripture, human reason's ability to attain truth must be recognized as well as its metaphysical capacity to come to a knowledge of God from creation theology's proper task is to understand the meaning of revelation and this therefore requires the utilization of philosophical concepts which provide a solid and correct understanding of man the world and god and can be employed in a reflection upon revealed doctrine the historical disciplines are likewise necessary for the theologian's investigations This is due chiefly to the historical character of Revelation itself, which has been communicated to us in salvation history. Finally, a consultation of the human sciences is also necessary to understand better the revealed truth about man and the moral norms for his conduct, setting these in relation to the sound findings of such sciences. It is the theologian's task, in this perspective, to draw from the surrounding culture those elements which will allow him better to illumine one or other aspect of the mysteries of faith. This is certainly an arduous task that has its risks, but it is legitimate in itself, and should be encouraged. Here it is important to emphasize that when theology employs the elements and conceptual tools of philosophy or other disciplines, discernment is needed. The ultimate normative principle for such discernment is revealed doctrine, which itself must furnish the criteria for the evaluation of these elements and conceptual tools, and not vice versa. Never forgetting that he is also a member of the people of God, the theologian must foster respect for them, and be committed to offering them a teaching which in no way does harm to the doctrine of the faith The freedom proper to theological research is exercised within the church's faith. Thus, while the theologian might often feel the urge to be daring in his work, this will not bear fruit or edify unless it is accompanied by that patience which permits maturation to occur. New proposals advanced for understanding the faith are but an offering made to the whole church. Many corrections and broadening of perspectives within the context of fraternal dialogue may be needed before the moment comes when the whole church can't accept them. Consequently, this very disinterested service to the community of the faithful, which theology is, entails in essence an objective discussion, a fraternal dialogue, an openness and willingness to modify one's own opinions. Freedom of research, which the academic community rightly holds most precious, means an openness to accepting the truth that emerges at the end of an investigation, in which no element has intruded that is foreign to the methodology corresponding to the object under study. In theology, this freedom of inquiry is the hallmark of a rational discipline, whose object is given by revelation, handed on and interpreted in the church under the authority of the magisterium, and received by faith. These givens have the force of principles. To eliminate them would mean to cease doing theology. In order to set forth precisely the ways in which the theologian relates to the church's teaching authority, it is appropriate now to reflect upon the role of the magisterium in the church. The Magisterium of the Church's Pastors God graciously arranged that the things He had once revealed for the salvation of all peoples should remain in their entirety throughout the ages and be transmitted to all generations. He bestowed upon His Church, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, a participation in His own infallibility. Thanks to the supernatural sense of faith, the people of God enjoys this privilege under the guidance of the church's living magisterium, which is the sole authentic interpreter of the word of God, written or handed down, by virtue of the authority which it exercises in the name of Christ. As successors of the apostles, the bishops of the church receive from the Lord, to whom all power is given in heaven and on earth, the mission of teaching all peoples, and of preaching the gospel to every creature, so that all men may attain to salvation. They have been entrusted, then, with the task of preserving, explaining, and spreading the word of God, of which they are servants. It is the mission of the magisterium to affirm the definitive character of the covenant established by God through Christ with his people in a way which is consistent with the eschatological nature of the event of Jesus Christ it must protect god's people from the danger of deviations and confusion guaranteeing them the objective possibility of professing the authentic faith free from error at all times and in diverse situations it follows that the sense and the weight of the magisterium's authority are only intelligible in relation to the truth of christian doctrine and the preaching of the true word The function of the magisterium is not, then, something extrinsic to Christian truth, nor is it set above the faith. It arises directly from the economy of the faith itself, inasmuch as the magisterium is, in its service to the word of God, an institution positively willed by Christ as a constitutive element of his church. The service to Christian church, which the magisterium renders, is thus for the benefit of the whole people of God, called to enter the liberty of the truth revealed by God in Christ. Jesus Christ promised the assistance of the Holy Spirit to the church's pastors, so that they could fulfill their assigned task of teaching the gospel and authentically interpreting revelation. In particular, he bestowed on them the charism of infallibility in matters of faith and morals. This charism is manifested when the pastors propose a doctrine as contained in Revelation and can be exercised in various ways. Thus it is exercised particularly when the bishops in union with their visible head proclaim a doctrine by a collegial act, as in the case in an ecumenical council, or when the Roman pontiff, fulfilling his mission as supreme pastor and teacher of all Christians, proclaims a doctrine ex cathedra. By its nature, the task of religiously guarding and loyally expounding the deposit of divine revelation in all its integrity and purity implies that the magisterium can make a pronouncement in a definitive way on propositions which, even if not contained among the truths of faith, are nonetheless immediately connected with them in such a way that the definitive character of such affirmations derives in the final analysis from revelation itself." What concerns morality can also be the object of the authentic magisterium, because the gospel, being the word of life, inspires and guides the whole sphere of human behavior. The magisterium, therefore, has the task of discerning, by means of judgments normative for the consciences of believers, those acts which in themselves conform to the demands of faith and foster their expression in life, and those which, on the contrary, because intrinsically evil, are incompatible with such demands. By reason of the connection between the orders of creation and redemption, and by reason of the necessity, in view of salvation, of knowing and observing the whole moral law, the competence of the magisterium also extends to that which concerns the natural law. Revelation also contains moral teachings which, per se, could be known by natural reason. Access to them, however, is made difficult by man's sinful condition. It is a doctrine of faith that these moral norms can be infallibly taught by the magisterium. Divine assistance is also given to the successors of the apostles teaching in communion with the successor of Peter, and in a particular way to the Roman Pontiff as pastor of the whole church when exercising their ordinary magisterium, even should this not issue in an infallible definition or in a definitive pronouncement, but in the proposal of some teaching which leads to a better understanding of revelation in matters of faith and morals, and to moral directives derived from such teaching. One must therefore take into account the proper character of every exercise of the magisterium, considering the extent to which its authority is engaged. It is also to be borne in mind that all acts of the magisterium derive from the same source, that is, from Christ, Who desires that his people walk in the entire truth. For this same reason, magisterial decisions in matters of discipline, even if they are not guaranteed by the charism of infallibility, are not without divine assistance, and call for the adherence of the faithful. The Roman Pontiff fulfills his universal mission with the help of the various bodies of the Roman Curia, and in particular with that of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in matters of doctrine and morals. Consequently, the documents issued by this congregation, expressly approved by the Pope, participate in the ordinary magisterium of the successor of Peter. Within the particular churches, it is the bishop's responsibility to guard and interpret the Word of God and to make authoritative judgments as to what is or is not in conformity with it. The teaching of each bishop, taken individually, is exercised in communion with the Roman Pontiff, pastor of the Universal Church, and with the other bishops dispersed throughout the world or gathered in an ecumenical council. Such communion is a condition for its authenticity. Member of the Episcopal College by virtue of his sacramental ordination and hierarchical communion, the bishop represents his church just as all the bishops, in union with the Pope, represent the church universal in the bonds of peace, love, unity, and truth. As they come together in unity, the local churches, with their own proper patrimonies, manifest the church's Catholicity. The episcopal conferences, for their part, contribute to the concrete realization of the collegial spirit, affectus. The pastoral task of the magisterium is one of vigilance. It seeks to ensure that the people of God remain in the truth which sets free. It is therefore a complex and diversified reality. The theologian, to be faithful to his role of service to the truth, must take into account the proper mission of the magisterium and collaborate with it. How should this collaboration be understood? How is it put into practice, and what are the obstacles it may face? These questions should now be examined more closely. Magisterium and Theology A. Collaborative Relations The living magisterium of the church and theology, while having different gifts and functions, ultimately have the same goal, preserving the people of God in truth, which sets free, and thereby making them a light to the nations. This service to the ecclesial community brings the theologian and the magisterium into a reciprocal relationship the latter authentically teaches the doctrine of the apostles and benefiting from the work of the theologians it refutes objections to and distortions of faith and promotes with the authority received from jesus christ new and deeper comprehension clarification and application of revealed doctrine theology for its part gains by way of reflection an ever-deepening understanding of the word of god found in the scripture and handed on faithfully by the church's living tradition under the guidance of the magisterium theology strives to clarify the teaching of revelation with regard to reason and gives it finally an organic and systematic form Collaboration between the theologian and the magisterium occurs in a special way when the theologian receives the canonical mission or the mandate to teach. In a certain sense, such collaboration becomes a participation in the work of the magisterium, linked, as it then is, by a juridic bond. The theologian's code of conduct, which obviously has its origin in the service of the Word of God, is here reinforced by the commitment the theologian assumes in accepting his office, making the profession of faith, and taking the oath of fidelity. From this moment on, the theologian is officially charged with the task of presenting and illustrating the doctrine of the faith in its integrity and with full accuracy. When the magisterium of the church makes an infallible pronouncement and solemnly declares that a teaching is found in Revelation, The assent called for is that of theological faith. This kind of adherence is to be given even to the teaching of the ordinary and universal magisterium, when it proposes for belief a teaching of faith as divinely revealed. When the magisterium proposes in a definitive way truths concerning faith and morals, which, even if not divinely revealed, are nevertheless strictly and intimately connected with revelation, these must be firmly accepted and held. When the magisterium, not intending to act definitively, teaches a doctrine to aid a better understanding of revelation and make explicit its contents, or to recall how some teaching is in conformity with the truths of faith, or finally to guard against ideas that are incompatible with these truths, the response called for is that of the religious submission of will and intellect. This kind of response cannot be simply exterior or disciplinary, but must be understood within the logic of faith and under the impulse of obedience to the faith. Finally, in order to serve the people of God as well as possible, in particular by warning them of dangerous opinions which could lead to error, the magisterium can intervene in questions under discussion which involve, in addition to solid principles, certain contingent and conjectural elements it often only becomes possible with the passage of time to distinguish between what is necessary and what is contingent. The willingness to submit loyalty to the teaching of the magisterium on matters per se not irreformable must be the rule. It can happen, however, that a theologian may, according to the case, raise questions regarding the timeliness, the form, or even the contents of magisterial interventions. Here the theologian will need, first of all, to assess accurately the authoritativeness of the interventions, which becomes clear from the nature of the documents, the insistence with which a teaching is repeated, and the very way in which it is expressed. When it comes to the question of interventions in the prudential order, it could happen that some magisterial documents might not be free from all deficiencies. Bishops and their advisers have not always taken into immediate consideration every aspect or the entire complexity of a question, but it would be contrary to the truth if, proceeding from some particular cases, one were to conclude that the church's magisterium can be habitually mistaken in its prudential judgments, or that it does not enjoy divine assistance in the integral exercise of its mission. In fact, the theologian, who cannot pursue his discipline well without a certain competence in history, is aware of the filtering which occurs with the passage of time. This is not to be understood in the sense of a relativization of the tenets of the faith. The theologian knows that some judgments of the magisterium could be justified at the time in which they were made, because while the pronouncements contained true assertions and others which were not sure, Both types were inextricably connected. Only time has permitted discernment and, after deeper study, the attainment of true doctrinal progress. Even when collaboration takes place under the best conditions, the possibility cannot be excluded that tensions may arise between the theologian and the magisterium. The meaning attributed to such tensions and the spirit with which they are faced are not matters of indifference. If tensions do not spring from hostile and contrary feelings, they can become a dynamic factor, a stimulus to both the magisterium and theologians to fulfill their respective roles while practising dialogue. In the dialogue, a twofold rule should prevail. When there is a question of the communion of faith, the principle of the unity of truth, unitas veritatis, applies. When it is a question of differences which do not jeopardize this communion, the unity of charity, unitas caritatis, should be safeguarded. Even if the doctrine of the faith is not in question, the theologian will not present his own opinions or divergent hypotheses as though they were non-arguable conclusions. Respect for the truth, as well as for the people of God, requires this discretion. For the same reasons, the theologian will refrain from giving untimely public expression to them. The preceding considerations have a particular application to the case of the theologian who might have serious difficulties, for reasons which appear to him well-founded, in accepting a non-irreformable magisterial teaching. Such a disagreement could not be justified if it were based solely upon the fact that the validity of the given teaching is not evident or upon the opinion that the opposite position would be the more probable. Nor, furthermore, would the judgment of the subjective conscience of the theologian justify it, because conscience does not constitute an autonomous and exclusive authority for deciding the truth of a doctrine. In any case, there should never be a diminishment of that fundamental openness loyally to accept the teaching of the magisterium as is fitting for every believer by reason of the obedience of faith the theologian will strive then to understand this teaching in its contents arguments and purposes this will mean an intense and patient reflection on his part and a readiness if need be to revise his own opinions and examine the objections which his colleagues might offer him if despite a loyal effort on the theologian's part the difficulties persist the theologian has the duty to make known to the magisterial authorities the problems raised by the teaching in itself, in the arguments proposed to justify it, or even in the manner in which it is presented. He should do this in an evangelical spirit and with a profound desire to resolve the difficulties. His objections could then contribute to real progress and provide a stimulus to the magisterium to propose the teaching of the Church in greater depth and with a clearer presentation of the arguments in cases like these the theologians should avoid turning to the mass media but have recourse to the responsible authority for it is not by seeking to exert the pressure of public opinion that one contributes to the clarification of doctrinal issues and renders service to the truth it can also happen that at the conclusion of a serious study undertaken with the desire to heed the magisterium's teaching without hesitation the theologian's difficulty remains, because the arguments to the contrary seem more persuasive to him. Faced with a proposition to which he feels he cannot give his intellectual assent, the theologian nevertheless has the duty to remain open to a deeper examination of the question. For a loyal spirit animated by love for the Church, such a situation can certainly prove a difficult trial. It can be a call to suffer for the truth in silence and prayer. But with the certainty that if the truth really is at stake, it will ultimately prevail. B. The Problem of Dissent The Magisterium has drawn attention several times to the serious harm done to the community of the Church by attitudes of general opposition to Church teaching, which even come to expression in organized groups. In his apostolic exhortation, Paterna cum Benevolentia, Paul VI offered a diagnosis of this problem which is still a propos. In particular, he addresses here that public opposition to the magisterium of the Church, also called dissent, which must be distinguished from the situation of personal difficulties treated above. The phenomenon of dissent can have diverse forms. Its remote and proximate causes are multiple. The ideology of philosophical liberalism, which permeates the thinking of our age, must be counted among the factors which may exercise their remote or indirect influence. Here arises the tendency to regard a judgment as having all the more validity to the extent that it proceeds from the individual relying upon his own powers. In such a way, freedom of thought comes to oppose the authority of tradition, which is considered a cause of servitude. A teaching handed on and generally received is a priori suspect, and its truth contested. Ultimately, freedom of judgment understood in this way is more important than the truth itself. We are dealing then here with something quite different from the legitimate demand for freedom in the sense of absence of constraint as a necessary condition for the loyal inquiry into the truth. In virtue of this exigency, the Church has always held that nobody is to be forced to embrace the faith against his will. The weight of public opinion, when manipulated, and its pressure to conform also have their influence. Often, models of society promoted by the mass media tend to assume a normative value, The view is particularly promoted that the Church should only express her judgment on those issues which public opinion considers important, and then only by way of agreeing with it. The Magisterium, for example, could intervene in economic or social questions, but ought to leave matters of conjugal and family morality to individual judgment. Finally, the plurality of cultures and languages, in itself a benefit, can indirectly bring on misunderstandings which occasion disagreements. In this context, the theologian needs to make a critical, well-considered discernment as well as have a true mastery of the issues, if he wants to fulfill his ecclesial mission and not lose, by conforming himself to this present world, the independence of judgment which should be that of the disciples of Christ. Dissent has different aspects. In its most radical form, it aims at changing the church, following a model of protest which takes its inspiration from political society. More frequently, it is asserted that the theologian is not bound to adhere to any magisterial teaching unless it is infallible. Thus, a kind of theological positivism is adopted, according to which doctrines proposed without exercise of the charism of infallibility are said to have no obligatory character about them leaving the individual completely at liberty to adhere to them or not. The theologian would accordingly be totally free to raise doubts or reject the non-infallible teaching of the magisterium, particularly in the case of specific moral norms. With such critical opposition, he would even be making a contribution to the development of doctrine. Dissent is generally defended by various arguments, two of which are more basic in character. The first lies in the order of hermeneutics. The documents of the magisterium, it is said, reflect nothing more than a debatable theology. The second takes theological pluralism sometimes to the point of a relativism which calls the integrity of the faith into question. Here, the interventions of the magisterium would have their origin in one theology among many theologies, while no particular theology, however, could presume to claim universal normative status. In opposition to, and in competition with, the authentic magisterium, there thus arises a kind of parallel magisterium of theologians. Certainly it is one of the theologian's tasks to give a correct interpretation to the texts of the magisterium, and to this end he employs various hermeneutical rules. Among these is the principle which affirms that magisterial teaching by virtue of divine assistance, has a validity beyond its argumentation, which may derive at times from a particular theology. As far as theological pluralism is concerned, this is only legitimate to the extent that the unity of the faith in its objective meaning is not jeopardized. Essential bonds link the distinct levels of unity of faith, unity plurality of expressions of the faith, and plurality of theologies. The ultimate reason for plurality is found in the unfathomable mystery of Christ, who transcends every objective systematization. This cannot mean that it is possible to accept conclusions contrary to that mystery, and it certainly does not put into question the truth of those assertions by which the magisterium has declared itself. As to the parallel magisterium, it can cause great spiritual harm by opposing itself to the magisterium of the pastors, Indeed, when dissent succeeds in extending its influence to the point of shaping a common opinion, it tends to become the rule of conduct. This cannot but seriously trouble the people of God, and lead to contempt for true authority. Dissent sometimes also appeals to a kind of sociological argumentation, which holds that the opinion of a large number of Christians would be a direct and adequate expression of the supernatural sense of the faith. Actually. The opinions of the faithful cannot be purely and simply identified with the sensus fidei. The sense of the faith is a property of theological faith, and as God's gift, which enables one to adhere personally to the truth, it cannot err. This personal faith is also the faith of the church, since God has given guardianship of the word to the church. Consequently, what the believer believes is what the church believes. The sensus fidei implies, then, by its nature, a profound agreement of spirit and heart with the Church. Sentire cum ecclesia. Although theological faith as such then cannot err, the believer can still have erroneous opinions, since all his thoughts do not spring from faith. Not all the ideas which circulate among the people of God are compatible with the faith. This is all the more so given that people can be swayed by a public opinion influenced by modern communications media. Not without reason did the Second Vatican Council emphasize the indissoluble bond between the sensus fidei and the guidance of God's people by the magisterium of the pastors. These two realities cannot be separated. Magisterial interventions serve to guarantee the Church's unity in the truth of the Lord. They aid her to abide in the truth in the face of the arbitrary character of changeable opinions, and are an expression of obedience to the word of God. Even when it might seem that they limit the freedom of theologians, these actions, by their fidelity to the faith which has been handed on, establish a deeper freedom which can only come from unity and truth. The freedom of the act of faith cannot justify a right to dissent. In fact, this freedom does not indicate at all freedom with regard to the truth, but signifies the free self-determination of the person in conformity with his moral obligation to accept the truth. The act of faith is a voluntary act because man, saved by Christ the Redeemer and called by Him to be an adopted son, cannot adhere to God unless, drawn by the Father, he offer God the rational homage of his faith. As the Declaration Dignitatis Humanae recalls, no human authority may overstep the limits of its competence and claim the right to interfere with his choice by exerting pressure or constraint. Respect for religious liberty is the foundation of respect for all the rights of man. One cannot then appeal to these rights of man in order to oppose the interventions of the magisterium. Such behavior fails to recognize the nature and mission of the Church which has received from the Lord the task to proclaim the truth of salvation to all men. She fulfills this task by walking in Christ's footsteps, knowing that truth can impose itself on the mind only by virtue of its own truth, which wins over the mind with both gentleness and power. By virtue of the divine mandate given to it in the church, The magisterium has the mission to set forth the gospel's teaching, guard its integrity, and thereby protect the faith of the people of God. In order to fulfill this duty, it can at times be led to take serious measures, as, for example, when it withdraws from a theologian who departs from the doctrine of the faith, the canonical mission or the teaching mandate it had given him, or declares that some writings do not conform to this doctrine. When it acts in such ways, the Magisterium seeks to be faithful to its mission of defending the right of the people of God to receive the message of the Church in its purity and integrity, and not be disturbed by a particular dangerous opinion. The judgment expressed by the Magisterium in such circumstances is the result of a thorough investigation conducted according to established procedures which afford the interested party the opportunity to clear up possible misunderstandings of his thought. That was the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith's 1990 Instruction, Donum Veritatis on the Ecclesial vocation of the theologian. Maybe you heard this in one listening, or perhaps over several sessions, uh, but uh, do um, do pay attention to it, and look at the document on the Vatican site, and ponder it in l- the light of what you hear from certain theologians today about perennial truths that the magisterium has consistently taught that are now under attack. As a matter of fact I think in the near future we're going to see a a tremendous attack on humane Vitae. Uh, Ask yourselves if those theologians are truly serving the people of God or are they serving themselves? And if you see a theologian going astray be sure to pray for him and always pray for our bishops uh, with the Holy Father whose task it is to safeguard the truth that leads to salvation. May God bless you, and uh, please pray for me as I pray.